This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. And now join me in welcoming Sandra Sully to introduce Gabby Hollows. Good morning, everyone. It's a real honour to be asked to... uh come and present some of these uh, conversations at the Australian Museum. If you're wondering how um, I ended up getting involved, I'm good friends with Kim McKay, who's the CEO, and she's a dynamo that is um, building this museum into an incredible institution. It always has been, but I've just watched um, from afar uh, with great admiration for um, all of the work she's doing here. I'm not here to spruik about Kim, but did any of you come last year to meet um, Mr Attenborough? That was quite the treat when um, she brought him out. And of course today we have a chance to meet uh, a woman I've admired uh, for as long as I can remember and to talk about a man when I first started in journalism. And I remember that first 60 minute story with Ray Martin and I thought he had a heart of gold and he was just uh, too generous um, for words and what he gave to our community, let alone the world, is just invaluable. So it's a real honour um, to acknowledge him today and of course the work of his amazing wife, Gabby. So, Professor Fred Hollows AC, as you know, needs little introduction, but for those who are unfamiliar, a brilliant eye surgeon with a strong sense of social justice. His career was shaped by his conviction to improve access to eye health and better the living conditions of Indigenous Australians. He was a pioneer, as we all know. His legacy is felt not only in Australia, but around the world. His advances in ophthalmology and his application of that work in some of the most underprivileged parts of the world has prevented curable blindness for millions and millions of people, and in turn transformed their lives and their futures. From humble beginnings, Fred Hollows followed in the charitable footsteps of his family and sought a life of service for those most in need. We are indeed honoured today to welcome his wife and professional collaborator, Gabby Hollows, as our guest this afternoon. Please make Gabby feel welcome. As Gabby makes her way um, up, up to the chairs, just to scene set, in 1992, uh, alongside Fred, they founded the Fred Hollows Foundation and since Fred's passing in 1993, Gabby has been the director and driving force behind the success of the foundation. It now works in 25 countries worldwide and has restored sight to more than two and a half million people. In 2017 alone, the Fred Hollows Foundation trained more than 100,000 surgeons, community health workers and teachers, supported more than 174,000 cataract surgeries and distributed over 18 million doses of antibiotics for people with trachoma. Before we, be we begin, ladies and gentlemen, here's a quick overview of Gabby and her work. Take a look at the screens. In Vietnam, his widow Gabby has gone there to ensure that the Horrors Foundation continues its site-destroying work in the third world. The leaders here were worried that without Fred, this site-saving work would die. Although Fred's not here, he's also been working behind what he was causing towards himself. The Horrors Foundation has, has a job 
to make this tool driven with the utmost care. Perfect center we get and all those tools that we're doing. Gabby, welcome. Welcome indeed. Thank you, Sandra. Now, what I never knew, and, and one of the joys of doing, you know, work like this is you find out so much more than, than the headlines you often only have time to read. Um, I always knew this strikingly attractive, gorgeous woman who was alongside Fred. Uh, I thought it was just an amazing love story. But what I have since found out is from the age of three, you had your own eye issues. So the journey's been somewhat personal from a very young age. It has indeed. Um, in fact, when I was a little girl, I was about 18 months old and uh, I ended up in the eye department at Royal Newcastle Hospital. That's where I fell in love and first met my first ophthalmologist, Dr. Clem Walters. <laughs> and I was as cross-eyed as a cucumber. Some people say, I don't know what a cucumber looks like when it's cross-eyed, but I was really not neat, pigeon-toed and cross-eyed. So in a funny kind of a way, I was a bit of a wreck. <laughs> so I ended up in the, um, in the eye clinic at... at Royal Newcastle Hospital, where my family have great associations in Newcastle, so that was it. But then when you left school, you graduated as an orthoptist and took up a position at the Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney, and that's where you met Fred. That's right. In fact, I actually broke my leg when I was about 14, and I thought I was going to be a physiotherapist, and orthoptics was my second choice, and um, I had surgery the day after my third birthday. And so, you know, I never thought I'd be sort of sitting down at the eye hospital with only eight people in a little tiny room becoming an orthoptics student. And my very, 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 very first optics lecture was given by Fred. And uh, I think that first photograph tells it, it says, you know, okay, which one of you knows the optics of a slit lamp? And I was sort of, you know, not shy because I'd worked with the DP on a Saturday morning from when I was in year two at high, in year, second year at high school. So I knew a bit about doctors and medicine and things like that and I, just, I sort of stood up and said, well, we don't know, sir. And, and, um, and Fred just basically said, well, you'd better bloody well pull it apart and find out. And I could see Sister Shirley Palmer, who was an, a lovely New Zealand uh, nurse who ran the eye department, sort of looking like a daggers at us and don't you dare touch that machine and pull it apart. So that was my first words from Fred to myself. Well, tell me what's the difference between an orthoptist and an ophthalmologist? Well, an orthoptist is um, like a physiotherapist is to a, an ophthalmologist. And a lot of people get confused between ophthalmology and optometry. Ophthalmology is a medical person who's graduated and done studied medicine, which Fred did, and then they go on and become a specialist in ophthalmology. Optometry is, in the old days, were the people that used to, you know, the opticians were the people that ground the glasses and made the lenses. So they're a bit like a pharmacist to a doctor. And an orthoptist, the first orthoptist is actually the daughter of an ophthalmologist. So she was the person who came out front in, in, and it's very subjective when you're testing eyes. And little kids, as I knew from when I was tiny, I don't know if anybody's ever been to an orthoptist, but you used to put lines in cages and work out the binocular vision. And you've got six muscles on each eye, so that's 12 muscles that have to work together. And you have to work out subjectively how little kids can see and what they can and they can't see and right up through all ages. So if you've ever been to the eye clinic and you've ever been tested, you've probably been worked up by an orthoptist first before you go and see the ophthalmologist. And I always used to joke that, you know, we do all the hard work and they get all the money. <laughs> well, I hadn't heard the term orthoptist before, so I was curious about what that was. Um, tell us a little bit about your work at the Prince of Wales and how it folded into meeting Fred and, and working with him? Yeah, well, I was actually very lucky because my first block as a medical, as an orthoptic student was with the med students and the um, eye registrars that were there. Um, as I said, orthoptics was 
chosen to me as a second choice. So I, I was actually very curious. I lived on the Central Coast and my mum and, and I came down to Sydney to, um, to put in my enrolment for my university and I put my, my physio and my orthoptics in and orthoptics sort of grabbed me and said that same day I was coming down to do my university um, admissions, um, we got a telegram in the old days, you know, the, the man with the telegram came down and my mum was meeting me because I was actually working at Gosford Hospital as a physiotherapy aide when I left school because that's what I really, really wanted to do. And mum said, well, we've got this telegram to go down to the eye hospital next Monday and this was on a Friday afternoon at lunchtime she met me. So we caught the train to Sydney. We went to the uh, University Admission Centre, which is in Conwell Street, just down here where the medical eye service used to be. And then we snuck down to Sydney Eye Hospital and sort of pushed the button and said, well, this is where we have to come on Monday. We'll be a bit cheeky and have a look. The, the, we caught the old concertina lift up. Who should open the door but Miss Lance, who was the head of School of Orthoptics, and said, oh, dear, we'll just come in. So Friday afternoon they were all sitting around having a cup of tea with some of the orthoptics students. And I happened to be wearing a white uniform that I wore at the hospital. I had a, a blue, pale blue jacket with white row grain uh, ribbons and white buttons. And I looked like an orthoptic student. I didn't know that they were the orthoptic colours, did I? <laughs> and so they went, oh, come in. So they actually walked me, worked me through and I was such a good ophthalmic result. I had full binocular vision that they were quite astounded that I'd had such good treatment as a little kid. So I passed the test and I kind of knew what they were doing to me. So I never ever thought that then six weeks after I started orthoptics, they chose me as an orthoptic student. There was only eight of us in our year. I had the lucky draw of going to Prince of Wales Hospital for the six-week block when you first become a student. Sitting in there with the ophthalmology registrars and their medical students and having the lectures and the talks and hanging out in the eye clinic with some very, very famous now ophthalmologists that you all have heard of in these, in these cities and towns. Um, when you started, was trachoma the, the main cause of avoidable blindness in Australia? Yeah, well, Fred actually was um, the first Indigenous person that Fred ever had that he ever ever met was brought down to Sydney by Frank Hardy, who wrote, you know, our Australian wonderful journalist who wrote The Unlucky Australians. And he brought actually Vincent Lingiari and his mate Donald into the eye clinic at Prince of Wales to have a look at their eyes because they were the ones that had gone on strike. They'd been working on the stations for years and years and years. There was a lot of support up in the Northern Territory. They were brought into Fred's eye clinic. Fred took one look at them and he could see that Vincent had had trachoma. And he said, I want to have a look at where you come from they had another eye condition, which was called Labrador keratopathy, and I won't go on about that. No, but they went, please don't. Hopped on a plane. They went up to the Gurindji camp. There was Fred and a, a lovely, lovely paediatrician who I only saw like two weeks ago, Ferry Gunsight, very famous. And Fred and a couple of other doctors, they flew up to Waddy Creek and saw the very first time he ever saw, and if anyone's got a copy of Fred's biography, there's a very shocking photo of an old woman called Morty who's bilaterally blind from trachoma. And trachoma in the old days in Australia was known as sandy blight. It felt like you had sand in your eyes and it was really gritty. And uh, when they first looked at people when they were coming in to, you know, be refugees and people moving in through into some countries overseas, when they came into America, in fact, the Statue of Liberty is where they used to, you know, process all the migrants. And what did they look for? They looked for trachoma because trachoma was a very, very blinding disease. And if you had that infection, then you were going to have trouble later on. So the governments were sort of really thinking about how many blind people were going to go on. And when Fred first saw his first bilaterally blind trachoma patient, he said, how many people have we got in this country? Have we got any trachoma here? So he rang up one of the doctors in Burke, northern New South Wales where Fred's buried, said, okay, do we have any trachoma? They went, I don't know. So they did a very, very first clinic in the showgrounds in Burke. 
Well, let's, let's take you back a little bit because I'm not sure how many people realise Fred was actually born in New Zealand. Yes, that's right. And he was always <laughs> driven by a son, strong sense of duty, referred to himself as a humanist, and that a higher power was to be found through the best expressions of the human spirit. So how did his family and his upbringing, do you think, influence that worldview that Fred had? Well, Fred was, as I always joke about, was manufactured in New Zealand and lots of people say, you know, we steal all the New Zealanders, don't we, in Australia? And all the famous ones all come over here and I've just heard that Sandra's husband actually comes from New Zealand today. <laughs> well, he lived there for three years. Oh, he lived there. Yeah, oh, I, okay. I have a real soft spot for, for the Kiwis as well. Yes. I think they're a little ahead of us on so many levels. Yes, and we actually have a Fred Hollows Foundation in New Zealand as well that's, you know, was established at the same time as Fred Hollows Foundation here in Australia because for tax purposes uh, you have to have an independent um, way of doing that in each country. But um, Fred and I kind of have this crazy link too because the, you know, the hobby of Fred when he was a Kiwi, he was when he was a young medical student, his, his favourite thing he loved to do was go mountaineering and climb up through the, um, the, the hills in New Zealand. And I don't know whether people know my date of birth but I was born on the 21st of May 1953 which was the same week that Tenzing and Ed Hillary summited Mount Everest. And I don't want to talk about what's happening there at the moment because there's some tragic stuff that's been going on recently. But So I was always obviously connected to Nepal without me even knowing that. I had no idea that my destiny was going to be so linked to Nepal. And, and to New Zealand. Hillary and New Zealand, yep. Um, we'll just indulge for a second. Do you remember the day you met Fred? I do. As I said, that was my first, my first meeting with Fred in the Eye Clinic of Prince of Wales, looking at... You know, in the, in a little room, and I was only just in there a few weeks ago, up in the eye clinic, in the same clinic, and one of our new registrars was starting. I said, "This is a very special corner. That's where Fred used to see all his patients." And going through the the uh, the beautiful gallery just up here, looking at some of the legends and some of the people, many, many, many of those people on the gallery have actually been Fred's patients. So he was kind of the go-to guy that people came for a second opinion or a last opinion. They'd all end up in Fred's clinic. One of the more signature moments in, in Fred's career was uh, the establishment of the, the Aboriginal Medical Service in Redfern in 1971-72, the first such service in Australia. Uh, was it that radical at the time? Oh, yes. There was no medical service. Our Aboriginal people that Fred sort of first saw were struggling really in so many remote areas. You go into, an, uh, into a country town and there would be... Um, a whole lot of, you know, Indigenous people sort of, you know, having all sorts of problems and very shy and embarrassed about fronting up to the hospital or to the local GP or wherever we had rural communities, there was always some Indigenous people. And uh, that was very, very sort of uh, active. And, and, of course, when our Indigenous people came into Sydney, I caught the train from the Central Coast and from Newcastle, where I was from, what happened with country people? They came to Sydney, the Indigenous people, where did they hop off the train? They didn't hop off at Central Station, they hopped off at Redfern because that's where the community was in Redfern and we all know the history of Redfern and how, you know, how things are changing now. So, you know, there was a struggle there and Fred was made aware of that and so they went, okay, we'll lobby for that and Fred thought he was going to a meeting about establishing the first legal service but it was actually about establishing the first medical service and... Uh, you know, Gordon Briscoe, who was one of Fred's mentors, who's the godfather to my one of my twins, Rosa, um, and Julpia, who was the Aboriginal nurse you'll see in some of that footage um, today. You'll see some of that. 
they were the two people that were some of the very, very founding directors. And in fact, Naomi Myers is, was the original director, was my son Cam's godmother. So we've got a very strong link to the AMS and that was established in those old days in Regent Street. Um, it's around the corner now, of course, in the old church where Ted Kennedy used to be. It's where the front door, the, fa the face of... And Regent Street in, in Redford, as you know, is now a very famous kind of trendy kind of place to go. But in those days, it was pretty rough and uh, pretty ready. And so there's a lot of history there. And we don't have enough time to talk about that. But it was my greatest privilege and my greatest honour to have worked so much with our wonderful Australians. And I pay my respects to all the amazing people that I met on the on the National Trachoma and Eye Health Program. It was a, I can't say it was an eye-opening experience because that's a little bit too cliche. But I seriously, seriously, seriously had the most amazing and unbelievable introduction to Indigenous uh, affairs. Now, the AMS was a significant milestone yes. in, in their health services and in the Australian uh, medical history. Uh, but I want you to tell us about... I mean, Fredson was always known to be quite gnarly, yes. quite blunt. Um, and as legend would have it, he browbeat his medical colleagues to um, help establish the AMS and contribute to his success. Do you recall any of those moments well, where... Well, I, I came along in Fred's life just when I was a, an orthoptic student. That was in 1971, 72. So it was when it was all happening and I was a little bit naive about Indigenous affairs. And in fact, when we first started on the trachoma program and I was only just talking about this to a little boy who's doing a project, one of our neighbours yesterday, I said I couldn't believe that it would be so hard to speak and communicate in my own language, English, in Australia. I felt really cheated as an Australian student who'd been educated here because I never, ever, ever, ever thought that I would not be able to communicate. I did not know there were so much Indigenous languages, hundreds and hundreds of languages. And when we got to Indolkanal, which is in the central Australian area, in the Pitindara area, in those first sort of month of working, we're, there we were with all these old, beautiful, beautiful old people. And I just went around behind the, the vehicles, you know, that we had parked in a row. It was windy, it was cold, it was right up on the region. And Dolkin was a pretty rough place, I can tell you now. And I just sobbed. I was so angry because I was so ignorant about what, what the history of our Indigenous people were. And how denied they'd been to the everyday accesses yeah. that largely yeah. white Australia had been That's given right. privilege and to. You know, the legend is that, you know, Fred went off to Prince of Wales and sort of backed the truck up and knocked off all the drugs from the pharmacy. <laughs> he was very naughty, but it wasn't him. It They're was the stories we want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, in fact, um, Dr Grunside, who I met only about two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, no, only two weeks ago, Ferry was there and he was in the hearing clinic and I was there with a... Uh, my um, my son's mother-in-law, who was having a few problems, she'd been flying and her hearing was a bit blocked up. And I, I said, I said, I've got to go and give this man in the corner a cuddle. And she sort of looked at me sideways, saying, "Who are you doing hugging this old guy in the corner?" And it was Dr. Grunsight. And I often go up the hill near where we live in Randwick, and I toot the horn and I wave. And Ferry says, "I'm trying, trying so hard not to sort of fall in front of the bus that I don't wave to anybody and standing there." And he's very deaf, <laughs> and he said, "It's because of all those bloody children who've been screaming in my ears for years and years and years." <laughs> And he used to work at, at the well, at the you know camp down at the children's hospital, and as well as Prince of Wales in those days. So you know there was a great camaraderie of people who helped Fred establish the medical service, and um, many many of those doctors are very famous in in our medical history in, in New South Wales. And I I just want to pay tribute to all those people who who helped kick that along. I mean the Indigenous Australians' plight uh, became stuck in your in your heart and in Fred's mm. heart, and largely directed. Uh, his future, didn't it? I mean, it, it was a personal like, passion. 
Absolutely. Like you just would never have – I would never – my mother always said to me, Gabriel, this is my first name, my full name, and it's actually Gabriel Beryl O'Sullivan. That's my real name. Um, she said, just make sure when you, you know, when you, before you go travelling overseas, you should go and have a look at your own country first. I said, oh, mum, you know, I didn't even know they were called grey nomads in those days. I'll go along with my caravan one day and poke around and have a look. And I'm a real country person. I'm a horse person. I've spent my whole life with horses and riding and country stuff. And I love the country. And, um, you know, little did I know that I would be in more communities than probably anybody's ever been in this country. 465 communities is a pretty amazing place to go. And we were always on the ground team that drove everywhere. We never went on the flying team that went on the trachoma program. We had a couple of, you know, road teams and, and sometimes I had to fly. I've never been to Mornington Island. I've never been to Croker Island and I've never been to Melville Island, but I think I've been just about every other place in, in this country and down every road and every stock route and every place you could ever imagine where there was an Aboriginal community. In every ditch and every humpy That's you visited. Right. Are those three still on your bucket list? Well, of course, yes. I was actually in Elko Island only just uh, 18 months ago. Um, you know, those places in the Torres Strait were very, very magical places and I was just looking up at Eddie Marbo and all the people that I've, you know, the, the history that we have had, the blessings that I've had to meet so many of our beautiful, beautiful Indigenous and rural people, country people, you know. We have, you know, I'm a real bushy, so I just love our history and I um, just watched the, you know, last show yesterday of Insiders, oh, on Sunday of Insiders, Barry Cassidy and his wife, Heather Hewitt, who goes around and has his amazing it's a great show, time. Isn't it? What a, I'm so jealous of the work that Heather did and, and I think, yeah, gee, you know, if we could all hop in that truck together <laughs> and we'd be off tomorrow, I tell you now. Well, we talked about the very early years, but let's uh, leap through to 1975 and a critical point in the trajectory of Fred's work was the development of the National Trachoma and Eye Health Program. That was established in 75, financed by the federal government. You were an integral part of that program, as you say, travelling across 450 communities. One of the largest public health studies ever done in the world at the time. That's right. Um, Fred was... Um, I just want to go back a little bit into Fred's history because he was an ophthalmologist who... He trained... He did medicine in, in New Zealand and then he went to the UK and studied his, his ophthalmology. But he trained with a very famous man called Archie Cochrane. And Dr Archie Cochrane was a ep medical epidemiologist and Fred studied and he did the first glaucoma studies when he was a medical student on glaucoma. And unless you understand about counting things in epidemiology, if you can't count it, you shouldn't be doing it. And if you can't prove it, you shouldn't be talking about it. And if you don't do it properly the right way, is what Fred's father always taught him, you may as well, you know, may as well not even start. So Fred had these really strong morals sort of grounded into him. And so that's why he wanted to go and have a look in Burke to see, okay, do we have trachoma? Yes, we did have trachoma in northern New South Wales. And yes, they had the first treatment program they ever, ever did with one of Fred's mountaineering mates from New Zealand, a guy called Johnny Glasgow, they had the first treatment at Ngonia, which is right on the border of, you know, near Kalamala and when you come into northern New South Wales, north of Burke, where Fred is now buried. Um, that's what Archie taught Fred to learn to measure, to, to do it properly. And, you know... The rest is history. The rest is history. Uh, so, on the National Tacoma and Eye Health Program in 1975, I had no idea what I was heading up for. And uh, a little bit later, you'll see a little bit of that footage. But it was just the most amazing, incredible time. And Fred said, I do not want that money to go to my, my eye department at Prince of Wales Hospital because I wanted to go to my collegiate. I wanted to go to the Royal Australian College of Ophthalmologists at the time. Malcolm Fraser was our, our, our Prime Minister 
in those days. And Fred said, I want my mates to help me. So we had over 80 ophthalmologists who came out on the, on the road with us. Sandra. Some of them came for weeks. Some of them came for longer than that time. Some of them came several times backwards and forwards where they were absolutely immersed in the work that we were doing. It was one of the most amazing studies and it hadn't been done like that before. So, And we had a very famous um, uh, Sri Lankan ophthalmologist, Dr. Pararajasekaram, and he and his wife, Ruby, were both ophthalmologists. Para came for a whole year. Ruby came for, she, God bless her, she's off to the angels now, but she came for six months. So Para was the one who worked with us very intensively. And uh, he was really the mentor as well to Fred and the work that we were doing about measuring and studying and looking at people's eyes properly. Well, clearly you were confronted about the scale of work that needed to be done, what needed to be accomplished. And he managed to convince so many colleagues to travel with you, mm. to make a start and, as you say, for him to educate them about, um, you know, how this program could be expanded. Mm. But can you paint a picture for us about the environments that you found yourself in? Because, you know, those great images of Fred... Um, Driving along in the red dust and the dust and, you know, Fred always... throwing a bit of canvas, you know, yeah. that, and, and a, a slapstick table became Absolutely. the operating theatre. Yeah, we actually rolled out our swags, you know, the best motel to stay in these days, you know, in those days. And, in fact, I gave the first ever, ever talk when Fred was so well he could go to Vietnam, but I gave the first talk in the Four Seasons Hotel just up here near Hyde Park. And the, the Hotels Association of Australia, they had their very first function there. And I said, I'm sorry that Fred can't be here. I'm so excited he's well enough to be travelling overseas. But I said, the best hotel I ever stayed with was in the Starlight Motel, under the stars, under the swag, at the, at the head, at the, f the foot of our, of, our, of our vehicles. And it was an amazing experience. So we really, really, really had an immersion into that culture of being, you know, on the road. We worked for days and days and weeks and weeks. And I think the first sort of month we're working, one of our um, staff said, well, when are we going to get a day off? And said, well, you're not having a day off until we get to where we're going. So, you know, we based ourselves in... Um, in uh, we first clinic we ever went to was in Port Augusta, near Port Augusta in Davenport Mission. We went up through the centre, as I said. We ended up in, um, in Alice Springs as another base camp. We had several places along the way... And as you can see on this brochure here, Charlie Perkins, um, you know, very famously from Central Australia, uh, um, Gordon Briscoe, you know, the first founding, one of the first directors of the first medical service. Those guys came from Central Australia and that's where we were, were immersed in that early, early history of very health, very first time we'd ever, ever had a mass treatment program, Sandra. We talked and they said, we don't want to talk about eyes, we want to talk about stuff down here. And Indigenous people in those days were just starting to have, in 1975, by that stage, there was the Central Australian Aboriginal Congress. And they wanted to talk about diseases, that, of, of venereal diseases and, and the things, the problems that were in some of the communities. So we were really, really leading the ways in many, many areas. And um, on that trachoma program in 1975, it was so challenging about Indigenous health. And, you know, Fred was one of those, you know, very, very feisty people that, no nonsense, you know, you just got on and you did it. And uh, the first treatment program we ever had for trachoma in Central Australia, we involved a lot of our Australian medical students. And, in fact, I'm about to go to Hobart in a few weeks' time and talk at the Australian Australian Student Medical Students Association talk conference. And the very first time Fred ever spoke in Tasmania was back in, I think we were coming from, we flew from Broome to Hobart 
in, with a, in an overnight trip. You know, we came down from 40 degrees to, to, um, to Perth. I bought myself a leather jacket. I never took it off when I got to Hobart. But that was many, many, many years ago, and I think that was about 1976. And we had a lot of medical students that came and, don and, and dosed the patients. In those days, they had to have 10 days of septrin, which was the drug that they used to treat trachoma with. These days, it's a very different drug where you have different doses and we do a huge, huge mass treatment in, in, in Ethiopia now and Eritrea and other places. But, but you that and was the amazing. team, and, and Fred must have had to... Um, you know, be really innovative because mm. it, this is all mobile operating theatres. I mean, how did you ensure that the sterilisation techniques, everything, you know, that you had to develop well, for something that was portable? Yeah. Well, on the, on the first, um, the first um, big m m surgery campaign that we had was in Central Australia. You know, of course, Fred was already going up to Burke and the eye department at Prince of Wales today still does the Outback Eye Service, Professor Coronio and... Prince of Wales Hospital still takes a team all the time. They still go about every three or four months to Burke and that's where the Outback Eye Service services New South Wales. But And many of the registrars that Fred have trained have been the other doctors that have gone to the other places in, in northern New South Wales or western New South Wales and other people in Victoria have done the same. But in Alice Springs, Fred said, OK, we're going to have our first cataract surgery on the first trachoma stuff. And he said, right, we're going to put it in Alice Springs Hospital. And the authorities at Alice Springs Hospital kind of went, oh, you can't do that, you know, the sheets might get dirty because we've got, you know, Indigenous people and, you know. So Fred said, right, we'll stick it right up their noses and we'll put it in the car park at Alice Springs Hospital. <laughs> that didn't actually happen because the army then came on board, the Royal Australian Army came on board and they had a medical corps and they, and they were really, really wanting to sort of see real-life patients. And so we actually had our very, very first surgical um, um, event was held at Armata, where the Royal Australian Army came along with the engineers and we had the first surgical um, treatment done there. And then later on, a few other times in Utopia and up near Catherine, the um, Australian Medical um, Department came and, and helped us do the, 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 mass, the, the surgery. So we didn't go around operating on people because when we actually looked at people, we actually referred them for surgery, we referred them for glasses, we referred them for GP actions, kids who had candlestick noses and custard ears, as we called it. Um, in fact, What's I a just... custard ear? A custard ear is when kids have got perforated eardrums with pus coming out their ears. I remember syringing... Um, and this is not a very nice thing with Jopia, one of the nurses who'd been the first nurse at the medical service that came out on the bush with us, and she's in that footage. We once got 17 flies out of a young kid's ear that we syringe with an ear syringe. You know, stuff like that was very, very... We've got Professor Paul Tozilla now as a respiratory physician. He was out in the bush with us. We had so many amazing people that came with us looking at general health. And in fact, Jack Waterford, who was the journalist from the Canberra, Canberra Times, Times, he met his wife Sue there now, and Jack now has, you know, we just saw him last week because we just had our AGM on the 28th. Um, you know, he wrote that, you know, some of those very first stories about if you were talking about um, um, the health of our, of our Indigenous people, um, Fred was comparing it to if, if these were people, you know, not, not human beings, they would be reported to the RSPCA. So, you know, there was a lot of stuff that happened and we had Sean McElwraith, who was a very famous health reporter from the ABC. He was there with his little typewriter on his knees, came into Annabella with us. So much history is going back there, Sandra. It's just amazing and, and it so was we never just groundbreaking. We, we never overstated it in the introduction that, that Fred and, and you, everything that you've done, you were and are pioneers um, not just in, obviously, um, yeah. all our treatments, but in Indigenous health. Yeah. 
So, you know, it's a long time ago now and I just had my birthday, as I said, on the 21st of May. And if you can do your sums, I always make kids do the, the sums. And I was born 1953, you can tell how old I am. So I We're might feel a little bit Wait, younger than some of the members in our room here. But seriously, how many of you have known people who had trachoma or sandy blight or that uncomfortable scratchy feeling? In fact, my granddaughter this morning just got a tiny bit of grit, a little bit of sand in her eye and said, now sit there, Matilda, sit still and just let it, your, your tears well up and blinky blink. She's going, ooh. She had a tiny bit of grit from a, a, the ball from their dog in her eye. So I sat her on the table out the front. And, you know, you just don't think. And I always use the, the uh, analogy of when I get into my car, I'm not sure which car I'm driving, whether it's a European car or a Japanese car, and I turn the windscreen wipers on and I put the wrong light switch on and I'm backing out of my driveway and we've got a big jacaranda tree and a camellia bush and all that sprinkles down on my on my windscreen at home. So when my windscreen wipers are going and my water squirters are going and it's scratch, 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 the first thing I've got to do is always run my finger along the windscreen wipers and flip them up and get all that off because when I'm about to take off, I don't want that going scratch, scratch, scratch. And in fact, my daughter, Anna, my middle daughter, who works in ICU at John Hunter in Newcastle, she was overseas at the World Rugby Tour a couple of years ago and she was in, 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 in Ireland. I was in Ethiopia at the time with that T-shirt you'll see in the, in the footage. And she said, Mummy, I can't believe how I feel so bad. I had one eyelash in my eye and I nearly was demented. I couldn't get it out. How do you think those people with trachoma feel? And I said, it's just like my windscreen wipers scratching up and down on people's corneas. I mean, it's clearly had a lasting Very impact. Very uncomfortable. Um, all the work that you've done with Indigenous Australians and uh, emboldened you to, to carry it on. But I wonder how special it's been as well to be able to educate so many uh, you know, fellow specialists and, and medical staff who have then been able to continue on the work and, and at the time they didn't know what they were about to learn. No, they didn't. And I think every, every um, person that Fred engaged with or talked to, he would want someone to teach him something that he didn't know, okay? And if they're a med student, you know... They'd have to ask a lot of questions. We used to do a lot of, you know, GP quizzes and we used to do, of course, the medical students, if they were lucky enough studying medicine, would be sneaky enough to come into Fred's ophthalmology lectures and some of them were too scared to come near Fred because he was a bit too scary. And other people remember that. We had a lot of ophthalmologists who came as young medical students who were on that first treatment program who they are now are now very famous ophthalmologists. But the registrars that Fred taught in his clinic are very famous ophthalmologists in not only this town here but in many other parts of the country. But one of the things was, um, you know, if a journalist came along, Sandra, and they hadn't done their homework, and you've done your homework today uh, talking to me, um, and they said, okay, Fred, um, I, you know, want to talk about glaucoma. And he said, hang on a minute, Sandra, I'm talking about trachoma, not glaucoma. So he would give the journalists heaps if they didn't know what he was talking about or if they were asking the wrong question. But it's about getting the story right, yes, isn't it? Yes, right. Absolutely. You know, it's about getting the story right. Now, and it's a very, very big story, this one. It's been happening for a very long time. And I'm so proud that, you know, you're here to, to listen to some of those early days. Well, I'm, I'm honoured to be able to help share the story and the remarkable work. I'm, I've been a fan, as I said, for as long as I can remember. And when I look through, um, you know, some of the notes I was given to prepare for today, 
Um, I remembered seeing Fred's work all of a sudden, you know, word spread about how remarkable his work was and, and uh, such a pioneer. And then before I knew it, he was consulting to the World Health Organisation. That's right. So he wasn't just acclaimed here, he was acclaimed no, on the world no, stage. No, no, People sort of thought, well, you know, where's Fred gone? You know, his eye clinic was, you know, we were three years out in the bush and all the other people kept the kettle boiling at Prince of Wales and Fred was out doing this stuff and we'd come and go and come backwards and forwards and... I won't even talk about what happened in Queensland with Joe Bjorki Peterson because that's another story and that's too I long. I was born there. <laughs> Let, let's not go there. <laughs> but what I was going to say, um, Fred had Dr Para, as I said, came from Sri Lanka. His next job was then to go and be employed by World Health Organisation, WHO, as a consultant ophthalmologist to study the prevention of blindness programs overseas. So he invited Fred to be one of his mentors to come and have a look at some of the other countries. Fred was invited, of course, to go to to Thailand, to to um, to Myanmar, to Burma, as we remember it, to go to Bangladesh, to go to Vietnam, to go to Nepal, to go to to up in into you know some of the hardest places in the world to have a look and consult. And I tagged along with him, and. Um, the only place I didn't go was Myanmar because it was a little bit difficult at the time. But Fred was asked to go and have a look at those programs. And, of course, the place that he really wanted to go to, where do you think that would be? Where there's snow and mountains and high hills. Of course, it was Nepal. So he thought he was going to just come cruising in and, you know, float in there and have a bit of a bit of a gander and have a bit of a look around and then head for the hills, literally. But that's when he met the very, 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 very famous Sundok Rawit, who is our Nepalese surgeon who came and lived at Farnham House with us in 1987, who is the godfather to my daughter, Anna Louise, who's now... She's born in 87, so what is it, 32 she's going to be. Um, Fred and 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 Rawit were bonded by the then the head of the eye uh, the eye hospital in in Kathmandu, and he was down in the Terai, way way out in the desert when he first met Fred, and I don't know whether you've seen just recently we had Dr. Rawit's book launch here in Australia um, last year in July. On the 9th of July, we did the launch at Farnham House and we had, I think, about 400 people at Farnham House. Of course, Rawit now has done more surgeries than anyone else on this planet. He is the one who's pioneered the teaching and we've now got the Lens Laboratory in Eritrea, which we opened in 1974, uh, 1994 after Fred passed away. And then the one, the second one was done in Nepal. Those little intraocular lenses that Sandra might tell you about um, are very precious, but Rawit was learning how to do that. And we used to call it the Prince of Wales technique. And then Fred called it the, the Rawit technique or the Nepali technique. And Dr. Rawit now, seriously, we just launched his book and it's called The Barefoot Surgeon. I don't know whether you saw any of it. Did any of you get that book or know about that book? No? Well, it's out there in the bookshops. You might have to order it in. It was in Dimex and was a lot of the bookstores right around the country. Dr. Rawit did a speaking tour when he we launched that book. Um, he um, has done more surgeries than anyone else on this planet. He says he stopped at about counting at about, you know, 130,000 people, personally, seriously. And his assistant, Dr. Rita Garung, and some of the other surgeons. When I was in Vietnam just recently, Sandra, um, I was in the middle of the Mekong Delta River and there's some of that footage again and some of the footage you might see very quickly. I was with this young, gung-ho Vietnamese surgeon that was hopping on the ferry on his motorbike when we were going into an island in the middle of the Mekong and um, just talking to him when we got there. And I said, how many surgeries have you done? He said, oh, about 11,000. You know, these guys are incredible. They learnt so well. They are such good doctors. 
And I was asked to go to Vietnam. Um, I don't know what your next question is going to be, Sandra. I've forgotten. But, um, but seriously... She'll keep you on my uh, toes, you, won't she? Yeah, I will. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, when we were talking about training to do this modern eye surgery, the new type of cataract surgery, do you know why it was new? What intraocular lenses, what they found out that they could use an intraocular lens. It was from the World War II. From when the Spitfire pilots crashed their planes, they had little tiny bits of perspex that went into the eye. And some very smart people in, you know, in optics thought, you know, if we can put a bit of perspex in the eye and the eye doesn't reject it, you know, if you have a kidney transplant or a heart transplant or you've got a thorn or a, or a, you know, a prickle in your finger, your body tries to spit it out, doesn't it? Guess what? The eye did not try to spit out the perspex in the eye. And that's when they first realised that if we could put a piece of perspex or optical quality perspex in the eye, that's when they first pioneered their very first intraocular lenses. So you had initially started and Fred's passion clearly was to treat trachoma and then through the World Health Organisation and meeting Sanduk Ruit and it's R-U-I-T when you go search Ruit. Yep. Ruit, R-U-I-T. Um, you discovered that cataracts were also a significant contributor oh, to blindness look, worldwide. Of course. We knew it was a problem in Australia um, with our Indigenous people. Of course, they hadn't funded up to the eye clinics and been seen by the ophthalmologists. But everywhere it will, will, in the world where you go, why is there so much blindness? There is so much blindness because there is not enough eye doctors to go around. Okay? What, is, what happens when your hair goes a little bit, you know, a bit grey and we go a bit foggy around the edges... What happens? Your eyes also start to lose that ability to focus when you need your reading glasses unless you're a short-sighted person. But when you can't see the beginnings of the chart and you start getting a bit rusty in there... It gets there, cloudy, doesn't it? It does get cloudy. It really does. And we have a, sometimes what we call our cataract simulators, which are a bit of funny kind of um, fuzzy kind of contact paper that we put on... We used to put them on like a pair of... Um, like a mask, an eye mask with a bit of elastic and now we've got these glasses that we give to school kids to walk around. It's like walking in the bathroom and you haven't sort of dusted down the mirror and everyone knows what it's like in the shower. So I wonder how many people here have had any cataract surgery. Can you put your hands up? Don't be shy, seriously. A few hands are going up there. Do you remember your grandparents having those very thick lenses like Mahatma Gandhi, which Ray Martin used to love calling the Coke bottle glasses? Yes. What happens to those when you lean over? They fall down and they break and they scratch and everything. When I used to go to the eye doctor when I was only 18 months old till three and a half until when I was about five, my ophthalmologist said, Ah, oh, my Gabriella, have you been polishing your glasses on the concrete? Because <laughs> they get scratched, right? And I grew out of my long-sightedness as I got older. I didn't need my glasses and I was such a great binocular result, I didn't need them anyway. But when you think about people in the old days when they used to have... Um, the very, very first memories in the Bible of people being cured for blindness was when they were being couched, the eyes were being poked so the lenses dislocated and they dropped down and people could suddenly see. But they had very disturbed vision. If you know the optics of a camera, you haven't got the lens, everything's magnified. So you've got to have that thick lens to focus it back onto the back of the retina. That's what your lens does. So cataract surgery is really quite a simple surgery now that we well, know... Yes and no. Okay. A prick to an eye, if you puncture an eye, and ophthalmologists have to be very careful and trained very well to do this, and that's why we need ophthalmologists to be able to do eye surgery. It takes a long time to be a very learned, learned eye doctor. When you put a scalpel or an incision into the eye, 
you run the risk of having that eye getting an infection, okay? And if you've got that very famous photograph of Jap, the Vietnamese boy that you see around on the bus stops and that little boy with Fred pointing at this kid's eye, he had a perforating eye injury. He actually had a piece of something, a foreign body in his eye. And one of the other things about the eye is, and I can't really describe it to you now except I'm holding my mic, my mic but if you've got, you know, your eyes cross over in the middle of your brain, the optic nerve and your vessels, the vessels at the back of the brain, they swap on either side. If you can imagine... If you have an incision on one side, you can have someone who's had a stroke who's lost their vision on one side. But also if you lose a blood vessel, you can have a retinal um, occlusion or you can go blind from all those things. But the eyes are supplied by the nerves and the eyes, both sides cross over. So if you get an infection in one eye, the blood-borne barrier can go to the other eye so you can actually lose sight of both eyes. So that lucky little boy was leaving the hospital in Hanoi when Fred first got there and his father grabbed Fred by the shirt and said, hey, hey, because he was being told nothing could be done for him. And there happened to be Fred and Dr. Sandokruit there. They went, hey, let's get a load of this kid. He's got a really hot eye. That's what an ophthalmologist would say. It's a really hot meaning. It's a really, really, really got a really bad infection happening. So they took him into theatre and they operated on him. And if that little boy hadn't had that surgery, he would have lost the sight in his second eye. His, that eye is not a good eye, but he's got, he never lost the second eye. So that's, he's actually our, our pin-up boy, our poster boy, that Michael Amendolia, the photographer from News Limited who came on that first trip to Fred, with Fred, flashed that photo of Fred and that's now, Michael is now one of the most famous photographers in the country and internationally. I was just spent, you know... Last week with him, we, Michael is one of our dearest and trusted friends and one of Dr. Wheat's amazing friends and he always takes so many photos of the Hollows Foundation. Um, so that is a very iconic image. So we, we are talking about the interocular lens. Um, Fred wants to describe them as the most expensive little pieces of plastic in existence. Uh, most of us in the Western world, at least in Australia, if you have cataract surgery, you're subsidised by the government. But, you know, the, the, the rest of the third world and, and anywhere outside of many places outside of here don't, uh, aren't lucky enough to benefit from that. So you guys decided to build your own interocular lens factory, initially in Eritrea and then secondly in Nepal. A pretty vital piece in the puzzle that promised to deliver Fred's dream of affordable um, cure for cataract bl blindness in the developing world. Yes, well, when we first, um, as I said, Fred was teaching Dr. Wheat and many of his registrars how to do that new type of modern intraocular lens surgery, those lenses used to cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars. They were being made by the, the, the companies that manufactured them. And, of course, everyone's saying, you know, well, you can't afford to do that type of expensive surgery in developing countries, can you, or third world countries? And I don't like using that word third world. Because why they cost so much? So Fred, you know, again, they knocked off a few and got a few donated to Dr. when he was going home to Nepal back in 1988 when he was going back. And he was going back without the tools of his trade. The tools of Fred's trade were he was a microsurgeon. What do you need? You need operating microscopes. You need his binocular, you know, his loops to look at things. You need the operating instruments. You also need the lenses and you need the sutures. So... Paul Ruiz and some of the other doctors, Dr. Des from Eritrea, they were going home empty-handed with nothing, okay? Fred was also 
a microsurgeon, but what was his hobby? His hobby was woodworking other than mountaineering. So if you don't have the right tools and the lathes and all the things that you do to be a good woodworker, you can't do your job. So if you don't have your tools of your trade, Mark over here can't make us work if his machine doesn't work and we can't show the footage and you can't do it if you haven't got a camera if you're on television. So if you don't have the gear to do it, it's so frustrating. And it was really, really hard for um, those guys going back thinking, oh, I'm only going to be able to do a few operations because we don't have the lenses. And so the power, the challenge, the powers that be said, Fred, you can't afford to do this. He said, well, okay. He'd been in Eritrea. He'd seen the Eritrean struggle in of War of Independence with Ethiopia. He'd seen them manufacturing pharmaceuticals and drugs and all sorts of things underground in the laboratories underground in the mountains. He said, if those guys are really smart, they should be the first people to be able to make a lens and make a laboratory work. So to have those little pieces of plastic... They cut out a little stamp, a little sheet of perspex, they count it out, and they go through a very huge thousand-hour pro process to manufacture those. So it's like everyone thinks about um, polishing gemstones, and I've got a little tiny magic little stone in my pocket here that my friend gave me, and it's not because of today, but my friend Jilly Pascoe, this has been polished on tumbling thing, right? The same thing that happens with the lenses. And those lenses go tumbling, 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 tumbling. And look at, at it by electron microscopes, big microscopy, blown up like in that gallery here. You can make it really big to see if they've got any faults in them. And if they don't pass that manufacturing process of manufacture or CE marker manufacture, you can't sell them medically. If you've got an implantable medical device like a hip or a heart valve or something foreign or a knee, which I need new, or a lens, if it's going to go into the body, any part of it has to go in, has to be, has to be having that medical mark of manufacture and, and authority to have that passed and big tick by the medical people. But, but this development is a game-changer worldwide. Oh, Do you totally. remember the price differential from oh. what was available, um, you know, to, to other surgeons uh, and then take yeah. us down the track to yeah. and, Fred and developed it, what, one-hundredth of the price, oh, one-thousandth oh, of the price? Absolutely. Well, we, we stuck to $25. We said it cost $25 to do this operation. That's the one message we've had. Five fivers for Fred, remember? Five fivers. And we've stuck to... That's roughly cost to run and do those clinics in those countries. Many of those places now do their own... Um, they work out who can afford to pay and who can't. The same as our government here. We've got public patients and we've got private patients. And sometimes it costs thousands of dollars here to have it done or you can get it done privately, or you can get it done publicly. When it's public, what is there? There's always a queue, isn't it? You have to wait. Why isn't it fast enough? Because the authority is saying, okay, we can't sponsor this many. So it's the same in a developing country as it is here, and it's a hot potato. People say, well, why can't we only pay $25 in Australia? But you think about how much it costs to run a hospital or an eye clinic or an eye department or an operating theatre and all the staff and all the people that are included in it, when Dr. Weed and those surgeons do that surgery on those eye camps way, way up in the Himalaya or in many of the other places, it can be done with an incredibly good team who are doing it all the time. They've got to know what they're doing. And they do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. Sometimes in an eye camp they might do over, over, you know, over a day, they might do over 150. You know, they used to talk about cricket because the Nepalis and the Pakistanis and the Indians all know about an innings, right? If they got to 100, they thought that was a pretty good score for the day and they go home happy. But, you know, 
one of those surgeons taking that that surgery and doing that surgery in one of those countries makes an incredible difference to those people. So every person who has the surgery has to have somebody to look after them, to bring them to the eye camp, to bring them down from the hills, to bring them along those horrible long, long tracks. To manage the pre-operative and post-operative. Yes. And every person who's blind, you might have an unsighted person. They shrivel up in the camp like that old Morty that Fred saw in, in Wadi Creek up in the Gurindji camp. Who's going to feed those old ladies in the, in the old widow's camp that Fred Force saw and we saw in the Tacoma program? They'd have to feel very gently in case they burnt their fingers on the cinders where they were cooking their dinner if the kids or people couldn't help them. They were all together in one little humpy, whatever. In many of the places you see people, they're all shriveled up because you think, you know, when you, as I say, when your hair goes grey and your eyes go grey, you start sort of withdrawing and you go into the camp. When you've seen lovely photos of our people having their surgery, the most amazing thing Dr. Oet says and many, many of the eye surgeons, every time they take a patch off, sometimes it takes a bit of time to focus and you might have a bit of eye ointment in your eyes or it's very bright or whatever and that's when we give the people the sunglasses afterwards because it is, you know, like literally eye opening. It's very dazzling. They haven't seen for a very long time. Some of those... Those lenses that we take out in some of those countries are almost black. I've got some earrings again in my little magic thing and they're quite a dark, lovely dark pearl. Some of them are that colour, literally. They come out and you think, my gosh, all brown and yucky and horrible. And you think, oh my goodness me, how long have that person had that, that problem? And who had to look after them? So someone there is being held back from going on. It's usually a young child... It's usually a young girl and, of course, who always lines up first in the line? It's always the men who are pushed forward first because they're the ones who are the most demanding. It's always the women. So one out of four people are often, you know, the ones, the other three people who haven't had the surgery are going to be women and girls and we've got a huge big thing on gender that we're happening too. So, you know, it's a pretty amazing thing when you think about it. They often have to wait to see... To feel, they know what their kids feel like. They've never seen their faces of their children, some of them, or their grandchildren, or their nieces or nephews. They have to wait for the kids to speak because they recognise their voices or feel their hair. Is it long hair or short hair or whatever? That's how moving it is. And sometimes you'll see them dancing for joy and jumping up because it is incredible. And a lot of the eye camps, they sometimes are able to come back for a second eye because you often never operate on the same eye the same day just in case you have a problem. And because you want that well-trained ophthalmologist to do that. The other surgery that you see us doing is for trachoma where they make an incision on the top of the lid and fold the lid back to pull the lashes back so they're not scratching up and down on the cornea. And that's trachoma, trachiasis surgery, different to, um, to the intraocular lens surgery. So the doctors and the people and the surgeons and the ophthalmic assistants who are often trained to do that surgery may not have done ophthalmology, okay? Because that's only external, it's not internal eye surgery. But I think what you're saying though is um, we know being able to restore someone's vision is not only life-changing for them but arguably their entire family oh, and totally. as a consequence their community. You know, and we've got beautiful footage. Of, if you're able to have a look at a computer and able to be look at the Fred Hollows Foundation website, there is so many YouTube videos and so many stories about people just dancing again and going back to work and being productive and, you know, if you, you know the old cliched saying, you, you know, you know, if you feed a fish, you feed the whole, you know, throw a little bit in and it just spirals out. It's incredible. So... 
it is an amazing thing. And of course, Fred was asked to look at, and cataracts were the biggest amount. And in the year 2000, they actually did a very good study in ophthalmology. Because if you can imagine, when you go to a community, and Fred learned how to count, you always know that there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine people sitting in that row waiting to be seen, or they might be in a community. They're all, everyone knows where the blind are because someone always has to be looking after them. So uh, the statistics in world blindness are very, very accurate. Okay? They reckon there was about 45 million people who were blind in around the year 2000. And so they said, let's try and do something. So all the people working in ophthalmology and optometry and orthoptics and anybody having anything to do with eyes all joined hands together and said, we're going to try and eliminate avoidable blindness by the year 2020. So we had 2020 vision, the right to sight. And that's a bit of a play on words. And everybody wanted to talk about 2020 then, you know. Everybody talked about it, not just the eye doctors, because that's how we measure it. 2020 is like six metres, okay, in me metric. So 2020 vision, so around about 45 million people, they were the people they that were counted who had, uh, had really bad, severe blindness, okay. They weren't people that were, had refractive blindness because they just needed a pair of glasses. Little kids in a lot of the places are very short-sighted and a lot of people are, are long-sighted. They don't have their spectacles. So that's where optometry and ophthalmology overlap. So those figures are very, very, very huge. So by the year 2021... Now, what year is it this year? 2019. 2019. So we're, we're, how close are we to achieving... We've gone down a lot. We've achieved a lot. And we still talk about 39 million people because we're actually talking not only about cataract blindness, we're talking about refractive blindness and all those things. And as we all get older, people live longer. What happens? You're all losing your vision. So... It's just, you know, how, how the world health, you know, has improved. It's come up a long way. Our life expectancy now is so much longer, isn't it? So, you know, I'm hoping that I'm still going to be 95, like my, my, my daughter-in-law's nana who just passed away on Saturday at 95. That was pretty amazing. I always said I wanted to be at least 93. But I don't know. We might be living, we might be more than the Queen Mother and go to we're 110. Who knows? So the journey's, you know, long and continuing, but so yes. is the work and that's ever expanding. Yes. Significantly uh, along Fred's path was receiving the um, Order of Aus the um, Australian of the Year honour in 1990-91. What did that do for you and Fred's cause in terms of spreading the well, word? How did that change things? That changed things because at that time we actually didn't know that Fred had a renal cell carcinoma. We actually, no, sorry, we did. We knew that when Fred, when Anna was born in 1987, um, we found out probably, well, I'll tell you. My daughter Emma was born in 1984. My son Cam was born in 1982. When Emma started school, on the day she started school, on the 4th of February, okay, in 1998, 1989, yeah, she, Fred had his kidney taken out at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. He had a tumour on his kidney, a very nasty tumour. He had no idea how long he was going to live for, so he knew he was on a, on a lighted fuse. So, so that's when cancer. Fred got very, very vocal, and that's when he was named to be... Australian of the Year in 1990-91. I hadn't even conceived the twins at that stage. I didn't even know I was going to have two more babies, but that was incredible. So we were on a very tight, tight time frame. So that's where Fred got very, very 
outspoken and said what he thought. And if he trod on people's toes, he didn't care. So being the Australian of the Year, though, gave him a brand new platform to take your story, your message and your work, not yeah. just Australia-wide. It was already out there on the world stage. Absolutely. But as you say, do you think having bowel cancer prompted him to perhaps um, expedite all the pleasantries and just... Be as blunt yeah, as a well, shovel about what needed well, to be he done. He actually had renal cell carcinoma, but he also got secondaries in his lungs and he had a whole lot of other problems health-wise because that blood carried around and seeded other tumours and things that he had. But one of the things with Fred was that he was... When you're Australian of the Year, and I know you've met many Australians of the Year and a lot of them are up there in the, in the, in the gallery, um, you go on a speaking circuit. It's okay? pretty demanding. It's very demanding and you're speaking in, I think it was something like 1,500, um, you know, places he spoke. I could be out every day at lunch, you know, breakfast, lunch and dinner talking about that, that what we did. And we did a lot of stuff with Rotary and the service clubs and Lions clubs and all sorts of other people were fundraising for us in the early days. And Ray and I to this day, Ray Martin, you know, who was our chairman for 10 years, are still shaking our heads thinking that, you know, when Fred used to go on the midday show, pass the had around if you had a few bucks in the in the in the hat you know when we first started with Ruit talking about what we wanted to do fundraising is just an incredible thing it can be private it can be public it can be it can be anonymous it can be you know it could be a, a brown paper bag gets into the office you know you just don't know it's always exhausting it's very exhausting and never know quite how much you're going to have in your budget the government had an amazing ability to, on both sides of government, whether whichever side was on with us, we're very, very, very bipartisan and we've had very, very good commitments from our, from our government. But, you know, foreign affairs and funding gets cut. What gets cut all the time? Those sort of overseas funds for the work that we do. So a lot of the work that we do is funded by our community. And the Australian community, to me, have been incredibly important to Fred and myself and the Hollows Foundation. And that's what Lucinda does. She links and, and talks with our people who are donors. And I don't care whether someone raises five cents or five dollars or a little school kid has a gold coin day or whatever. It all adds up. It all goes into our funds and we spend it how we say we're going to do it. And if you just have a look at our annual report every year, it's an amazing thing. So in those final two years of Fred's life, you said there was at least 1,500 public appearances to raise awareness for the newly created foundation and all the work that uh, you wanted to continue to do. Um, and, but during that time, Fred's in and out of hospital. He checks himself out of hospital and yeah. then flies to Vietnam. He does. And uh, that's pretty incredible. And that's when he saw that Jap, that little boy. So, you know, he promised that he was going to do... ...trained 300 surgeons in three years. And what happened? 1992, that's when he was there... Um, just before he passed away in February of 93 and six weeks later I followed up and I went to New up to, to Vietnam to promise that we would still contribute and we would still keep that promise. We were very, very, very lucky in Vietnam when we first, when Fred was there because the, the then Minister for Health was actually an ophthalmologist, Professor Nan. So he was a Minister for Health and he was an ophthalmologist. He's a professor at the INE at the Eye Hospital in Hanoi and he gave it his blessing, you know, a bit like the Pope or something. He gave it his imprimatur. He said, yes, we will train 300 surgeons in three years. And we actually trained 360 surgeons in three years. So that was a remarkable thing. But here's your great love, Gabby. <laughs> and he's arguably only got a couple of years left to live. Yeah. Did you ever sense, um, did you ever have any resentment that he was giving himself 
to everyone else other than you and the family? Well, it was hard and it's been very hard for my kids, you know, because, you know, some of my kids, my two oldest children, the three oldest children, remember their dad. Anna, not so much, but Cam and Emma. You know, Cam was coming up for 11. Emma was a little bit young or two years younger than Cam. So, you know, it's hard when they go to school and they'd say, see Fred on the bus stop, see Fred everywhere, see Fred posted all over the place. That's their dad. When their friends say, oh, how's Fred going? They will actually, you know, he passed away, you know, 26 years ago. It's hard for them sometimes. It was very hard for me. But we've always had a very communal sort of background. Our house in Farnham House has always been a very open house where people would come in. Sometimes we'd have the front door open and the back door open and you would never know who was coming in one door and out the other. And when Fred was dying, a lot of people when they are passing away or they're dying of something, some people want to come and talk to you and Fred wanted to meet those people, want to say the last things and the final goodbyes or some people just want to come and give you a hug or a kiss or whatever. Many, many, many hundreds of people came through our doors in that stage in those last five years when we knew Fred was so sick. And that's a very enriching thing. And it's a community that have been so, so honestly listening to what we're doing and listening to our story and we are very grateful for that. So for me, I've always had, as I say, my own boots on and I've talked about it because it's part of my DNA as well to be able to be passionate enough to speak about what the work that the Foundation and what Fred had, thought, had taught everybody about. And, um, and it's my job now to talk to people and say thank you for believing in our story because it's an amazing story. You know, 25 countries you know, plus, you know, other places we've worked, some places we, we've, you know, worked really, really hard in. We've got that huge stuff happening in, in Vietnam and Pakistan and Bangladesh and Africa, you know, go on and on and on, Cambodia and Laos. Our Indigenous program in Australia is an amazing program that we're still doing. But so, Gabby, you know, when Fred passed, how difficult was it to reassure your corporate partners, uh, government partners, that... I mean, you, you had to carry on the work, mm. even though you were grieving. Um, and I know you had a personal investment and a personal passion. But how difficult was it to convince um, your commercial partners to, s to stay on board well, and follow through? We had a, a very big, um, a wonderful group of our, our board members, um, our members of the Hollows Foundation, our fellow ophthalmologists who knew what we were talking about, the country knew the story, you know, and you're still listening to it now, today. That story is an amazing story. And for me, <laughs> I got great enrichment. You know, the day that Fred... We knew Fred was dying. And the day that Fred passed away, we were kind of on pause. We knew he was really, really, really sick. You know, when that switch flicked off, I think all that energy went into everybody to just make that promise happen, seriously. I'm wearing this, I'm a very sentimental person and I'm wearing this scarf, which I wore to Fred's funeral at St Mary's, just like literally, you know, a few hundred yards up the road here. And I wear that on special occasions and I wore that today because I'm really being very sentimental about how, how you know, the people have, we've told the story to are still continuing that story. You know, on Friday we've got our wonderful ex-Prime Minister Bob Hawke's funeral. I'll be, a, I'll be a, an observer there to that. And it was Bob, you know, who gave Fred that Australian of the Year trophy, you know. Sits in my study in the front room under a beautiful portrait of Fred. There were so many mementos to the special moments. And I am, it must be my Irish connection, I don't know. Um, 
you know, I've got such an incredible sort of background in all sorts of ways in many religions in my family. I've just got, I'm a, I'm a bit of an old witch, I always say, but my kids, um, you know, I'm very, very, very connected to things. And, you know, I always say that Fred's looking over us, you know, out there in the, wherever he is up there, and there's always a special rainbow or a storm or a, you know, the day that we flew up, Fred's body, we had the cathedral, the, the funeral at St Mary's and then we had a pause and the next day we flew everybody to Burke. Why did Fred want to be buried in Burke? Why did he want He's to be buried? He's buried under nine tonnes of granite, polished from Adelong. And my kid said, Mum, the grave can't look like a bed. Thirteen years later, along came Andreas Busman, who's, this, who's a beautiful sculptor, who's one of the sculptors by the sea. And I actually spoke to his wife, Sandra, in uh, Vienna last night. Um, the reason why, and Mike Linsky, who was our first CEO of the Hollows Foundation, was actually in Vienna yesterday. I got so excited. I said, oh, my gosh. Mike was actually given a, an AM yesterday as an, as an accolade because he did so much work in those grounding days. We had Brian Doolan, who still is very involved with the Hollows Foundation. We've now got John Brumby as our chairman. We've got amazing people and amazing board members who've continued the work of the foundation and make it driven. And for me... Um, that moment when that energy went into us, Mike and, um, you know, all the media and, and, and Ray and a whole lot of people flew up to Burke and then my amazing, they took off at, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning and they left Mascot, half past 6, 7 o'clock, all these guys with all their leads and the media and the television. We didn't film it in the cathedral but we did in Burke. They were all there flying up to Burke. And what happened? There was the most amazing hailstorm at Sydney Airport. They had to close the airport down. That was bloody Fred for sure, absolutely. <laughs> and just only, only seriously, when we just had Coast Trek happening in down in the Mornington Peninsula, another beautiful halo came over. My little grandchildren, two, you know, only last week went for a little walk and they came back and they'd been in the gully, which is named after Fred. There was this beautiful rainbow looking over Randwick. You know, the weather gods, Fred is one of those and I tell you what, he controls the weather and parking spots, he's very good on parking spots. So anyway, we better shush up because a lot of people need to go and catch their, their I transport. Just, I do want to say though, mm. um, you know, we can't thank you enough for no. obviously the indefatigable of Fred and his irascible yes. self have managed to spread the story worldwide. Yes. But your story, I think is now our story. It is, and we absolutely. see pictures of Fred everywhere and we, we know his story. We couldn't be more grateful, yeah. I think, as a nation. And, I know the, I and, the, and the Fred Hollows Foundation name, it's ridiculous. You go to places, see Hollows and this and that and kids, you know, in, in kids' workshops, you go overseas and they talk about Hollows or they talk about Fred. You get taxi drivers who go in there, oh, yeah, you know, oh, you're Australian. Oh, you must know that Fred Hollows or that Tom Keneally. They're often Eritreans, you know, seriously. But I'll go to Mark now because he's got a beautiful bit of footage just to wind it up. Okay, we'll have a look at that before we go. Humans care for each other. We look after the weak, the young, the sick, and the old. It's a bloody good answer. It's a ripper. The Australian year from 
That's all, Vincent. That's Professor Nan in Vietnam. Won't be long. A few seconds. A group of friends and supporters have set up what they call the Free Minds Foundation. I'm a little bit embarrassed about the name. Basically, the foundation is to carry on work that I have been involved with, some work that we'd like to get involved with. Joel Edgerton. Daughter Rosa. Yeah, a round of applause. As we wrap up today's conversation series, are there any questions from the audience at all for Gabby? Yes. Sue, have you, oh, you've, got a, you've got a microphone there. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Yeah. for the talk. I just wanted to quickly ask, in places like Eritrea, where you're in developing countries, when you're doing the lenses in those early days, what did you do about anaesthesia? I mean, Well, oh, sorry. One of the things that an ophthalmologist does is we do a retrobulbar injection, which is a needle that goes behind the eye, and it's not a general anaesthetic, it's a local anaesthetic. And they have to put a weight on the eye sometimes. You might see people with this funny, like a sort of balancing act and it's a weight on the eye and then that needle is injected at the back of the retina and that's called a retrobulbar injection. Very good question. Yes, well, not usually. We usually give children ketamine or another drug that's, um, that's you know, for children, little ones. Um, it's a little bit different, yeah. They're usually done in a, in a, in a theatre, yeah. We have another question over here. Hi, this yep. is just amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you mentioned fish before, and it made me think about teaching people yep. to fish. Yep. Um, are there many indigenous ophthalmic surgeons now? Well, that's a lovely question. Um, we've got a lot of, as we said, you know, we've got a lot of indigenous um, medical graduates now. And we've only just last year, we got Chris Riley-Baker, who is the first indigenous ophthalmologist who graduated and was awarded his fellowship at the Royal Australian College. And the Royal Australian and New Zealand College, they're combined together now, of ophthalmologists, they're meeting in Adelaide last year. And Chris Riley-Baker is a beautiful man. He comes from Queensland. Uh, he's a very, very, very beautiful boy. And it was hard for him studying as being an, an indigenous doctor. And, uh, you know, whatever you're going to be, there's a lot of people who love to put their hand up being an eye doctor, but it's another 
big long slog to be a real ophthalmologist and to be have that amazing medical training. In fact, Dr. Wheat's son, um, Segar, is now really lucky because he's got into the ophthalmology training program in Tilganga in Nepal. And it was hard for his son to even pass those exams to get in. And he was the same way, the same hard test, you've got to line up and, uh, and, and, and get that, pass all those exams to be even thought about as being an eye, an, an eye registrar. So we don't make it easy for people, but we make it very, very, very well thoroughly trained yeah. surgeons, yes. Um, the other quick question is, you know, we're talking constantly about the cure, but yeah. what about prevention? Well, there's a lot of work being done, of course. One of the main things, Professor Hugh Taylor, um, we did a thing with, um, we talked, called it super sight, how in, our Indigenous Australians have wonderful eyesight. And I used to go, when we did the trachoma program with Hugh and some of the other orthoptists and people that were working, we would test vision at a really extended distance. And we did a lot of that in the jails. In fact, I've probably been in more jails than most people in the country. And uh, one of the jails was in, uh, uh, the best testing we ever did was from an Aboriginal girl in Jigalong, which is in Western Australia. She wasn't in jail, mind you. But there was another man who was in Geraldton Jail and he was such a sort of a, a good, you know, visually talk about Aboriginal you know, trackers and people being able to see stuff. Um, the, the, uh, the governor of the jail at the time wouldn't let him out because he was such a naughty boy. And uh, they wouldn't let him sort of because they thought he would take off. And um, I've been in Yalata Jail. I've been in, you know, out at Prince Henry. I've been everywhere, many, many jails looking at eyesight. Mm -hmm. But I tell you, um, you know, our Indigenous people also have that huge amount of ultraviolet light and, and sunlight, right? And one of the things I didn't talk about was I'd mentioned it very briefly was Labrador keratopathy, which is where our Indigenous people have been a stockman on the... That's what Vincent had. They have a stripe across their cornea. And that's what the Inuit and the people in the northern part of the Arctic have from too much reflection from the light. Yeah. And when you have ultraviolet and sun and sunlight, you do get changes in your lenses. And Professor Hugh Taylor from Mel Melbourne, who's shown in that footage there, when he was a young registrar, he went on and became the professor of the Iron Ear in Melbourne. He's doing a lot of work on trachoma now. Um, he is like one of the world experts on trachoma and on, on visual um, problems due to sunlight intensity. So nutrition, sunlight intensity, you know, you should wear your sunglasses seriously yeah. and, um, and your hat for your skin and your eyes as well. And if you've got good healthy tucker, then you're not going to go on and get all those other things. And now, of course, our beautiful Indigenous people have things like rheumatic heart disease and renal failure because they've had scabies and infected things and it's too much of a another story to go on to, but, you know, we are really, really, really lucky that we've got really, really very good um, studies that are being done in ophthalmology on why. And, you know, people are saying, well, we're we going to have, you know, something that can dissolve the lens or what can you eat? And there's all those kind of stories, you know. Um, there's a lot of work being done in medicine on all sorts of reasons for health. So the world is a changing place and, you know, I would love it to think that I don't need a new knee or a new, you know, whatever. Um, Sandra's uh, got a, her own little story. She might like to tell you something, a little secret. Come on. <laughs> Come on, Sandra. Well, I had a full lens replacement of both eyes last year. Um, there's cataracts in my family and um, because of the work I do, I can read the autocue very easily. But I was starting to need glasses just for the close-up work. And then when you're doing uh, on a big story, I had no problem reading the autocue, but it was moving down between the desks, checking my scripts if the autocue failed, staying connected with the computer as stories were developing. And I, it was just that juggle of putting your glasses yeah. on and off while you're working. Yeah. And so I balanced, I was recommended to trial a sequence of recipes of um, 
contact lens because one eye was short-sighted and one eye was long-sighted. And uh, I went to see if it was, you know, if I was suitable to get LASIK surgery or what were my options. And I was actually completely suitable for a full lens replacement in both eyes. So I had one... Different strengths in each eye. Because exactly. no, not two, no two eyes are the same sometimes. And so I persevered. You know, one was, you know, uh, 0.5 and the other was 1.5. And so I had to persevere for six months to get the right combination of contacts. And once the ophthalmologist was certain that he had the right recipe... Um, I went in for day surgery one morning, did it towards the end of the week. Um, the next day I could see out of that eye. I had a series of different drops for a couple of weeks and two weeks later I had the other eye done and I'll have this, uh, this quality eye vision until I die. <laughs> and you might see that little, little girl, she had glasses on. There was that lovely little one with the ponytails. We do put intraocular lenses in children. Um, sometimes they have to be upgraded and changed a little bit when they're a little bit older. But mostly we just give them the spectacles to start with and then they're, you know... But at the time, if you turn, it depends on how much access you're going to have to the surgery. And we've got lovely stories with twins. And there's so many stories on the Hollows website about the type of surgery they've had and the, all the, that sort of stuff. I mean, I was done. very lucky to be suitable for that sort of surgery. And my twin sister's now going to the same surgeon to see if she can have the same thing. Because, you know, you, you get so frustrated about having a set of glasses next to the bed, one in the car, one in the kitchen. Mm. You're constantly trying to find those glasses you, drop to read whatever garden. it is you need to read. Um, and because there's cataracts in my family, somewhere over the next 10 years, it may get a little bit cloudy. So they literally laser an incision, take out your old lens, insert a new one. And he said the, the, the sack, it's like a grape, really. And he said that sack may get cloudy, which is what happens with cataracts. So the surgery was as simple as cataract surgery, with bo which both my parents have had, um, which, as you know, um, is, there's tremendous coverage with the rebate here. Um, but because while my surgery was equivalent to cataract, um, I wasn't eligible and nor was I interested. The fact that I could afford to play and have this essentially almost 20-20 vision until I die is one of the greatest gifts. I am so lucky, but I had no idea till last year that this was actually available to people. And I had told one of my colleagues that had worn glasses his whole life and he's, his marriage had broken down. He was starting to go out with a new girl and he said, I'd just like to go out and not wear these glasses. <laughs> so he went along and um, the surgeon found a melanoma on his eye and while he has progressed to have the surgery this year, what he didn't know was that talking to me and getting recommended to that surgeon, he, he actually saved his eyesight because he had a melanoma on the pupil and he didn't even know. But, um, I, I mean, I've, I, I've always admired the work that you and Fred have done. I never realised until our chat today um, how much, of course, you love the man and everything he did, but it was your mission as well. Is, this is as much your personal story as it is Fred's. And I think I can say collectively and honestly that we couldn't be more grateful for everything that you do, everything you've done, the amazing husband you had, but the work that you continue to do. We are very privileged um, for you to share your time and your story today, and we can't thank you enough. And thank you, Sandra. I just want to say, I want to say thank you to everybody who's believed in our story, but I also have a very lovely new husband, a new old husband, John Belaz. <laughs> he's not an eye doctor, he's, a, he's a, a tax lawyer, actually. And John allows me to do what I do. If I didn't have John who, who helped raise all our children, I wouldn't be able to have done the work that I've done. So 
He's a bit shy sometimes. He hates coming to listen to me talk because he always goes, oh, Gabby, just wind it up. Stop talking so much. Well, I, I, but, I, I, but seriously, if I hadn't had John to, d to help me with the kids and, and all the wonderful godmothers and godparents and friends and community that made this magic happen and our wonderful staff, I'm so jealous of all the people that work for the Hollows Foundation overseas and in our... But how could you not? Is this woman not clearly infectious? <laughs> and can I ask you, as we wrap it up, um, and I do need to point to the next conversation series. Um, it's on, you know, the extraordinary um, Albert Namajira, Francesca Cabillo, in conversation with the outstanding Tracy Holmes. So that's and let me tell you up. about Hermansburg. It's one of the most beautiful places you can go and you know, you're all very familiar with all the Namajira paintings and all the Hermansburg oh. paintings and all those beautiful watercolours. They used to have the most amazing bakeries out there in Armada and Hermansburg and I just remember the very first time I went there and you see those hills and those beautiful, you know, that beautiful morning and daytime stuff. He captured that uh, lemon and lavender in the, in the west. Unbelievable stuff. Northwestern yeah. light, magic. didn't he? You should go and come and listen be, to the next As we talk. wrap it up, I would ask you all, and Gabby doesn't know I'm going to do this, but don't you think it was a tragedy, incorrect use of word, I know, that Fred isn't on our fiver? And there's a campaign that it's continues okay. to run. I, I, I know. Fivers of Fred, and that was that photo of us taken down with Bob Hawker down at the Opera House. But he is on a ferry. And it's a Fred Hollows ferry. And I just said, well, I'd rather he wasn't in someone's dirty old pocket, you know, with their dirty old cigarette butts and their So you don't want bobs. us to maintain the rage that Fred no, should be on the fiver? No, I'd much rather he'd be on a ferry. All right. And he's on a dollar coin too, remember? The Mint minted a coin a long time ago. So I'm okay with that, seriously. And, and I think, you know, Fred was pulling you know, change out of your purse or your pocket, you know. <laughs> you know, five fivers of Fred's a pretty good campaign. So if you make it 25 bucks, we don't have a $25 note You're yet. Right. We probably never will. Let's stop the campaign <laughs> and just get more people to, to support the work that yes. you... Yes. You and Fred And I started. actually haven't had a ride on the Fred Hollows Ferry yet because we did – it was extraordinary because we've got a Fred Hollows Ferry, a um, Catherine Hamlin Ferry was the first one they brought up, then they had Fred's Ferry and then they had Victor Chang and I've got associations with all of them because Victor Chang was actually operating my father for his mitral valve done. So I'm linked up. And we went on the ferry just before it had the plastic seats taken off with on my um, – my step-granddaughter, Fred's eldest daughter, Tyne Isabella, was her 21st birthday and it was, you know, only a couple of years ago, not that long ago when the ferries came up and they were manufactured in Hobart. And do you know how they steer those little ferries, Sandra? And you saw that ship crashing into the, the horrible thing in, in, in Venice last, last week. It was frightening. The tiny little joystick, it's about this big, and my little, girl, little daughter, uh, Matilda, was only, she wasn't four then, she was only, you know, Two, uh, three and a half, and three. The how they see those ferries is just by this tiny little thing, and we as a family have never been on the Fred. So many people say, oh, "I caught Fred to work today, and he used to do the Eastern Suburbs, Watson's Bay, and he's now going over to the zoo and over to Man. He gets around a bit in the harbour." And my great grandfather, my Irish grandfather, was one of the very first directors of Sydney ferries. He was an Irish sea captain. In fact, you know, Maeve O'Murray, lovely cooking Maeve. Well, she's a cousin of mine. Her great-grandmother was my grandfather's big sister. But, but Maeve got into trouble as a journalist coming in the door when Fred was sick, when we said everyone was coming in and now we were going, hey, you're a reporter, you can't come into our front door at Farnham House. And she said, well, actually, they didn't know that Maeve and I were cousins and that she'd done a lovely, lovely interview with Father Frank Flynn and Maeve. And Frank Flynn was one of the very first ophthalmologists who was a Catholic priest, a Sacred Heart priest. 
And he and Ida Mann, another very famous doctor in Western Australia, were the first people to work on trachoma in Australia when they used to call it Sandy Blight. So there you go. That's Sandy a, Blight, that says it all. Ladies and gentlemen, please let Gabby Hollows know how grateful we are for her to share her story today. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.